If you're able, please remain standing for today's scripture reading, which comes from Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, by which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. All right. Well, here we are, second to last week in our sermon series this fall, walking through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And Paul tells us today, he says, finally, it's the last thing he's going to say in this letter about what it looks like to live the Christian life. And of course, he has painted a picture for us of this cosmic battle that's happening all around us. And when we talk about matters of evil in the world, there are really two extremes. Uh, C.S. Lewis put it this way in his introduction to his book, The Screwtape Letters. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which humans fall when we talk about the devil. One is to disbelieve in the devil's existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased, the devils are equally pleased by both errors and hail the materialist or a magician with the same delight. You see, you know what a materialist is, right? A materialist is a person who says everything forever and ever, always, can be described and explained by merely material answers. That is, physical things, whether we look at it in a microscope, whether we measure it in waves of light or other types of energy, right? Everything can be reduced to that. There, there is no other realm. There is no spiritual reality. That would be materialist. And that's fine. The devil's glad to push people off in that side of the ditch. Well, the other side, though, uh, sounds something like this. Everything, everything is of the devil, right? The devil made me do it. Right, you hear this, and uh, this is Christians are mocked for this. Right, it, it's to not honor material world. It's to not honor science. It's to not honor all of the the wonder and marvel in some ways of of modern medicine. It's to reject the goodness of the scientific method, maybe, uh, and you fall off on the other side. And so C.S. Lewis, I think, wisely points out that the devil really doesn't care which side you fall off on. Right? He really doesn't. What, what the devil doesn't want us to realize is what 
Paul is trying to point out. You see, uh, we are all tempted to reduce complex things to a simple or simplistic reality. We are all tempted to reduce complex things to a simplistic reality, when in fact, most things in the world, especially evil, is multifaceted. Right? There, are, there are multiple things working at the same time. And some people uh, have mocked Christians pointing to verse 12, where Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Right? Of course, Paul does not mean that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Of course we do. There are evil people who walk into sh- to schools and shoot children. There are evil people who walk into churches and shoot people. There are physical manifestations of evil. What Paul is saying is that we don't merely fight against flesh and blood. You see, what Paul is inviting us to do is to look deeper. That's why this sermon series is called In Light of More. Right? It's, on, it's on the screen behind me. Paul is inviting us to realize there are deeper realities at work. And if we only look at things from our five senses, we will be duped. And so Christians are a yes and people. We are a yes. We need to fight to protect children in schools. We need to fight to fill in the blank. And yet we also know it's and there is so much at work on what we might call a spiritual dimension. And so we know there's a battle. Some of you may not be Christians. You may not even believe in a personal devil or demons like the Bible teaches. But I, but I want to invite you to consider something. And that is, that is this. Can you explain everything? Can you explain everything you experience? And if not, then I would invite you to, to just be open to listening. At least listen to the Bible's explanation, not for simplistic explanations, but for rich and multifaceted explanations. Because you know you're in a battle. Whether you're a Christian, you're not a Christian, you know there's a battle. Uh, the way that we define the battle, uh, it, might be, it might be against your own willpower. You, you seem not to be able to do the things that you want to do. Uh, other people may draw the battle lines. Um, it's between the government and the people. Or it's between uh, gun control and protecting children. Or it's between fill in the blank. You look around at evil in the world, you look around at systemic oppression, and you create the battle. For some of you, it's, it's wrestling against your own psychology, which is a real thing. Or your own physiology, which is a real thing. Or the trauma in your family of origin, which is a real thing. All of these things don't get swept away by what Paul is about to teach us. But we understand the multifaceted reality of how evil works in the world. And so what Paul wants to do is he wants to answer three questions. He wants to answer, who do we fight? He wants to answer, what do we fight? And he wants to answer, how do we fight? Okay, so first, who do we fight? Well, he tells us right here in verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, the first thing Paul wants to do is make us aware of the battle we are in, right? When you're in a battle, 
it's a good idea to get a good sense of who your enemy is. Otherwise, how do you know how to fight? And so Paul wants to tell us who our enemy is. And the language in verse 12 tells us a couple of things. The first thing it tells us is that what we're really facing, we're facing two regimes at war with one another. The Bible also says two kingdoms at war with one another. There's the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of darkness, and there is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of light. And what you need to know is that there are not some things in your life that God cares about. You might call those spiritual things and some things he doesn't. Right? Some things he just lets the devil take. Okay? Everything in your life is spiritual, according to the Bible. Why? Because God cares about it. Everything in your life is contested by the devil. Everything. And so what you have is a picture of two regimes fighting back and forth. That's the battle for the, the life of your mind, for your own heart and what you desire, for the words that come out of your mouth. Everything in your life is contested. And this battle was going on before us. This battle will go on after us. And we find ourselves, whether we know it or not, in the midst of this cosmic battle. And I know that some of you find this bizarre. Some of you find this hard to believe. And I wonder if one of the reasons you find it hard to believe is because you really believe that you're in control of your life, like 100% in control. So you kind of think that the options are, I could follow God or I could, I could listen to the words of Jesus and give my life to that, or I could sort of do my own thing. And, and many people who do their own thing kind of look at the Bible as though it was a really helpful book for people before a scientific era. Right? It's like, this is a really helpful book of moral tales, but we've moved on. Right? We've, we've evolved socially, we've evolved technologically. We just understand that given enough time, we'll figure everything out by our favorite science, right? Biologists think they'll figure it all out. Physicists think they'll figure it all out, right? Philosophers think they'll figure it all out. But I would invite you to, to consider this. Consider this. Are you really in control of your life to the level that you assume? Right? You may feel that you're living your life the way you want to, but let me ask you this. Why do you want what you want? You ever thought about that? Do you think that you just somehow came up like unimpeded by anyone else? You just want what you want? And, and what if you know what you want and you feel like you know why you want what you want, but how do you know what you want is right? right? If you think about those questions... I just, I'm curious where you would end up because what Paul is telling us in the scripture is that biblically speaking, we don't have a choice to be our own master. Ultimately, in reality, you either follow the God of the Bible who's revealed himself in Jesus or you are taking part in the devil's kingdom and his schemes. Those are really the only two realities. That's the first thing that Paul shows us uh, in this passage. The second thing he wants to show us is the strength of the enemy. All right, look at these words that he uses. Against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Uh, this word cosmic powers could be translated gods of this world. 
And in fact, Jesus in John 14 says that Satan is the ruler of this world. That's what Jesus says in John 14. He says, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The Apostle John in 1 John says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So, our enemy is mighty. Our enemy is strong. And really the whole point is this. You have no chance on your own. That's why Paul wants to end with this, right? By the way, don't be caught unaware, Christian. That's what he's saying. Be strong in the Lord. And he mentions this idea of heavenly places. Now, this isn't the first time he's pointed to this realm of heavenly places. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, he said that the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe is seen in the fact that he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So there's this realm that Paul is giving to us. He's, he's making us aware of in chapter 1. Then in chapter 2, he says that if you're a Christian, you're united to Christ like in marriage, and you've become one. And now we too are, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. And so this isn't new. There is reality in our life that we must be made aware of. And the entire book, this entire book of Ephesians, has been one big invitation to see the world with more than what our five senses show us. Okay, so who do we fight? We fight the God of this world. We fight the prince of darkness. We fight the prince of the power of the air. We fight evil, the evil one, evil personified. And so if that's who we fight, then what exactly do we fight? How is this enemy engaging us? And he says it in verse 11. He says, put on the whole armor of God. We'll get to the armor of God in a minute. He says that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The schemes. What is that? You could translate it strategies. That we would be prepared to fight against the strategies of the devil. This is strategic warfare. Okay, and there are two main ways the Bible teaches us that the evil one mounts his attacks. Because the word Satan means accuser. He's a liar. He's the father of lies, Jesus says. So the two ways, the two main schemes the devil uses are he tempts us with lies and he discourages us with accusations. He tempts you with lies and he discourages you with accusations. And so now I want to paraphrase uh, John Stott and I'm going to sort of weave my words in and out with some of John Stott's words. But if Paul wants us to fight the schemes of the devil, we have to realize this. We have to keep in mind that the devil has no moral principles. Okay? He has no, he has no code of honor. He has no higher standard to answer to. He recognizes no Geneva Convention of spiritual war. He's not restricted to 
uh, to partially civilize the weapons of his warfare. Okay, he hates you. He hates you. And he's utterly unscrupulous and ruthless in the pursuit of his malicious designs. He has strategies. And these strategies combine with a sort of tactical shrewdness and an ingenious deception. And it's because the devil actually seldom attacks in the open because he's a coward. He's a coward and he's smart, right? He, he attacks in the darkness because he prefers darkness to light. And yet when he does make himself seen, Paul tells us in Corinthians that he present, presents himself as an angel of light. Why? So that he can be caught unsuspecting. He can catch us unsuspecting. He's a dangerous wolf, but he enters Christ's flock in the disguise of a sheep. Sometimes he roars like a lion, but often he is subtle as a serpent. We must not imagine, therefore, that open persecution and open temptation to sin are his only or even his most common weapons. He prefers to seduce us into compromise and to deceive us into error. Significantly, this same word that Paul uses of schemes is the same word he uses for false teachers when they use their crafty tricks to get us to believe false things. You see, the devil really has a twofold strategy, right? He has tactics of intimidation, which is usually what we think about, right? People with their heads turning around and puking green, right? That's usually what we think about. And he does use tactics of intimidation in some places in the world. But oftentimes he attacks with insinuation and he has uh, an alternate plan of trying to twist God's word. So he plays sometimes the bully, but most of the time the charmer, the wooer. He uses both force and fraud. He's mounting attacks day in and day out. This is what Paul means by do not be caught unaware of the schemes of the devil. Now, what does this mean? Well, there was a pastor in the 1600s named Thomas Brooks. And Thomas Brooks wrote a 160-page pamphlet for his church called Satan's, uh, on Satan's devices, called uh, The Precious Remedy uh, to Satan's Devices. Okay? It's, it's a list of uh, ways that the devil attacks us and whispers in our ear. And, and there, I, would, I would commend it to you, Thomas Brooks. I want to give you two of them. One of the things that he says is that, listen, some of you right now are waiting on God. You're, you're pursuing God. You may be trying to make a decision. You may be waiting on God to give you an answer. You may be waiting on God to provide something, a deep longing in your heart, to bring about restoration in some relationship. And you're longing and you're waiting and God is shaping you in that waiting. And God is asking you to trust him. And yet in that waiting, when God is making you more like him, more like Jesus, more patient, more trusting, the devil takes that opportunity to lob things into your mind that sound like this. Do you think God really loves you? If God loved you, wouldn't he have answered this prayer more quickly? Can you really trust God? Do you really understand the Bible? Is this really a good desire that you have? And he gets in there and he twists your own thoughts and he twists the word of God 
and you think it's your own mind. But it's him. Other times, he actually presents to you temptation. And he shows you the bait, and it looks really good. But he hides the hook. What is it to you that over and over, you see the bait, and you think, maybe there's no hook this time. Maybe I'll get away with it this time. Maybe it'll actually deliver this time. And then you bite, and you you get reeled in. Thomas Brooks offers you dozens more than that. And what I find is I sort of get attuned to the enemy's strategies with me. And then I feel like, nope, block him off. I know what this is. I'm not going down that road. And then again, nope. And I go through a season where I feel like, I got this. And then there's something new. And then there's something else. If I were to open this piano right now, if I were to open this up, some of you might know there would be strings in this piano. There would be, whenever the keys press down, it hits a a string, it hits a cable that, that makes a certain noise, right? Well, most of us, many of us, nearly all of us, when we sing, we don't really have perfect pitch. But if you did, and I opened this, and I were to sing a note into there, when uh, that string that corresponds with that note, it would resonate, it would ring, it would hum. Did you know that? If you would go in here and I would sing a note, let's say it was a G, it would, it would ring that and you could, it would resonate. That's why we say to people, oh, that resonates with me because they speak something and it feels right and you're, you're connecting with them. Or if it, if it just bounces off, you say, I don't really resonate with that. I don't understand that. So we get that from a piano, Okay. And so what happens is that uh, Satan, when he speaks, when the enemy comes against you, he knows what strings to play. He knows what tune to sing into your heart. He plays you. Do you see what I'm saying? He plays you like an instrument. That's the idea. The devil knows how to play you. And so what do we fight? We fight his schemes. We fight his tricks. We fight his lies. We fight his deceptions. And oftentimes he's hiding underneath other realities that are real. Right? We have sin and we've been sinned against by real physical things. People have hurt us. People have spoken words to us. These are real things. And yet he seems to go deeper than that. He seems to then twist the reality and make it something else. And so if we fight the evil one, who's mighty, and we fight particularly his schemes to trick us and deceive us, then how do we fight? Okay, how do we fight? Because Paul doesn't want to merely make us think that we ought to live our lives small and be scared. No, it's the exact opposite. Paul's about to tell you that not only is the devil a coward, but he's been beaten. He's been destroyed. His kingdom has been dealt with. And yet there are still skirmishes. The war has been won, even though there are still battles to be fought. And so he wants to tell us how to fight. And he gives us two exhortations. The first one is very short. The second one is what I want to spend the next few minutes on. So the first one, he says right away in verse 10, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now these words... Strength, strong, might 
are also words that Paul already used in uh, chapter 1, verse 19, in relation to God's work of raising Jesus from the dead. He said that God, in the strength of his might, raised Jesus from the dead. And now he's saying to us, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. And he's trying to clue us back to saying, the strength that we gather is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's the power that we are to be uh, given into, to take on is that power. So be strong in the Lord. And really, these two exhortations to, to be strong in the Lord and the second one, which is to put on the whole armor of God, what they do is they, they display the tension between God's power and our responsibility. Because there are two ditches when we try to think, how are we going to fight? There are two ditches. One is we're too self-confident in ourself, and we think the right plan, the right strategy can take on the enemy, even without the Lord's strength. That would be too confident. But the other side would be to think that you and I contribute nothing to our victory in spiritual warfare. But in fact, we do. Because God makes his power available to us, but we are to strengthen ourselves in it. We are to put it on. We are to take it on. We are to work hard. We are to gird up our loins, as the Bible says, to prepare ourselves for battle. And the word that Paul uses is that you might stand. He says it five times, stand or withstand. Each time it's a verb to stand, stand strong, stand up. Get up. That's what he's saying. But when you stand, when there's this deliberate personal action, he says, don't stand without the armor of God that he has given you. And Paul details these six pieces of a soldier's sort of equipment. Now, when Paul writes this letter, he's actually chained to a Roman soldier in a prison. That's how they did it. So, so Paul wouldn't escape or any prisoner. Paul was actually physically chained uh, to a prisoner and then the prisoner, I'm sorry, as a prisoner to a soldier and then the soldier would rotate. And so it's almost as though Paul is watching all of these soldiers walk by in their armor. And he says, you know what? This fight that we're battling, is kind of like this. And he pulls these images from what he sees around him. And the first thing he says is, put on the belt of truth. So we have this belt of truth. It's sort of the undergarments. It's, it's to gird up your loins with truth, right? And so what would happen is when you would do this, it would free you up. When you would gather your undergarments and tie it up with a belt, you would be able to move unimpeded. And what Paul is telling us is that when we have truth, we can move with more freedom. Do you see that? When we know truth, we're unimpeded because we're not as susceptible to lies, both truth of doctrine and sincerity of heart. And then he moves on and he says, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. You know, a breastplate was basically four pieces of armor, sort of covered your chest and your shoulders and your back. All right, and there was uh, these, this metal that was shaped and sewn onto leather and you would put it on like a jacket so that things would not be able to penetrate you from the front or from the back and from the sides. It would come around like a jacket. And what Paul says is you have a breastplate of righteousness and this is the righteousness that's given to us in Christ. You see, you, you protect yourself with this breastplate. And for the Christian, we put on the righteousness of Christ. We put on his record so that when the devil tries to pierce us with lies, it bounces off 
It bounces off because it cannot be penetrated. It's the righteousness of Christ that we wear. He then says, he, what I'm calling the shoes of, of peace, right? Shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And these shoes came up halfway to your calf, okay? And on the bottom of them were metal studs so that you could plant your feet and get steady, right? They were like cleats. And they went up your legs so that there was more support. So that not only could you stand secure and stable, but also, as he says, that you would be ready to move with the gospel of peace. And so you see, in this warfare, it's not only that you stand, but sometimes to withstand, you have to take a step into it. Right? The devil is coming at you with these lies. You have to step up. And you have the breastplate of righteousness. And you've girded up your, yourself in truth and you're steady and you're willing to take a stand with the gospel of peace and speak truth even to the enemy and speak truth to those who are being wooed by the enemy. Do you see this? Do you see this picture coming together? It's, it's one of warfare. And then you have a shield of faith. And this isn't one of those circular shields that's kind of small. This is one of those long oblong shields that covers your entire body. You sort of hold it like this and it goes head to toe. And you see, oftentimes in warfare, ancient warfare, they would take an arrow and dip it in pitch and they would light it on fire and they would shoot it. And these, these, um, these shields uh, would have leather built into them as well so that when the, the fiery dart entered into the shield, the leather would quench the fire. And it would protect you. And this shield is a shield of faith why a shield of faith? Well, the way faith works in the Bible is that you have to look away from yourself to Jesus. And so the way a shield works is you put the shield in front of you and you trust in the shield. And so when the enemy is attacking you, you put Christ in front of you, your trust in him, and he shields you and he protects you. And then lastly, he says, to put on the helmet of salvation. And this helmet was one metal piece and it was fashioned and it was put on your head and it was often decorated. And as one uh, theologian put it, this helmet of salvation, which adorns and protects the Christian, enables us to hold up our head with confidence and joy because we have been saved. That's why it's called the helmet of salvation. We walk into battle not arrogant, but confident. Not strong in and of ourselves, but strengthened in the Lord. And the last thing we put on is the helmet of salvation. So when we walk into the battle day in and day out, we don't do this. We don't cower. We look up. We look enemies in the eye because we have the helmet of salvation. We've been protected. We've been saved. Nothing can come against us. Nothing can come between us and our King and our Savior. And then last is the sword of the Spirit. Now, you might be thinking of the, the, the what is a King Arthur and this, this huge sword, this sword that's like five foot long, this huge sword. That's actually not the Greek word that's used here. It's actually one of those tiny swords. It's almost like a dagger. You got this small sword. Why is that? Well, because this battle is so close that if you had one of those big swords, by the time you were getting it out, You'd receive a blow. 
but you have this small sword. And this, this points to the word. Look with me with this word in verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It's almost like he's changed metaphors to that of the wrestler in the, in the Olympics, in the gymnasium, but he hasn't. This word wrestle is trying to denote the fact that this is hand-to-hand combat. This is a street fight. This isn't drones dropping bombs from 50,000 feet in the air. This is the devil in your grill lying to you. And when you're in a battle like that, you need a knife. And he said, that's the word of God. You have something that's both, a knife is both defensive and offensive. It's both precautionary and it's reactionary. And so putting it all together, how does this image Paul gives us, how does it work? And this is how it works. When the devil lies and accuses you, you tell him to take it up with your Lord Jesus, the master of the house, the lamb of God, your savior. When the devil comes to you in your face, and, and gets up and you, he breathes in your ear and you hear him whisper lies to you, accusations, you look him in the eye and you remind him that all that you have is now in Christ. You belong to him and he can take it up with your master. When you hear him recounting all the good that you've done, wooing you to view yourself as more righteous than your neighbor on your own account, right? Because he will. That's one of his schemes. He'll, he'll make, try to make you think that you need Christ less and he'll woo you out of that armor and then, and then he'll harm you. You tell him Christ is your refuge and your strength and that you count your accomplishments as nothing compared to Christ's victory on your behalf. When he leans in close to you and whispers that you're weak and that you've fallen short of God's standards, you take that sword of the Spirit and you tell him that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say that we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar. And his word is not in us. And so when he tells you of your sin, you say what Martin Luther said, so what, devil, so what of it? You're forgetting one convenient fact. Yes, I've sinned. Yes, I've fallen short. But Jesus has died for me. When the devil mocks you and tells you how weak you are, simply tell him he's a coward. And his words are empty. Because as Paul says in Colossians, Jesus has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. And he set aside this debt, nailing it to the cross, and he has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This image is one of a a battle that's won, and what they would do is they would take all of their enemies and they would strip them and they would chain them and they would march them through the city and people would mock them. And Paul says, that's what Jesus did to the enemy. He stripped him of all of his power. He stripped him of all of his clothes and he is mocking him. And you and I are standing in Christ. We've won the battle in him. Jesus destroys the enemy and then he gives us this armor as a gift. And he says, here's a gift to protect you in these last few skirmishes. 
until all the battles are won. Wear my armor, wear my strength, take my shield, take my righteousness, be protected in my victory. That's the message of the gospel. And so don't be caught unaware of this battle. And yet don't think that you fight it only in your own strength. And don't fight the battle as though the war is still in question. The war has been won, decidedly. And now you and I are walking it out, battle by battle, in the confidence of the Lord. And that's where Paul wants to end his letter to Ephesians. Be encouraged. In Christ, you wear the whole armor of God. You are protected. Jesus has won the victory. Jesus is your victor. And now we stand behind him as our shield in confidence. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now uh, asking that you would increase our confidence in Christ. Draw our eyes to you, Lord Jesus, that we would see your victory that we would see your strength, that we would step into our calling, that we would follow you in every way. And we ask, Father, that you and your Son would send your Spirit to quicken our hearts, to bring to mind the Scripture that we've memorized, the Scripture that we've heard, so that we're prepared in our wrestling. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.